This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could please open to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it'll be coming up on the screen, we got you covered. But, would love to have offer you a Bible. On your way out, there's a table where there's extra Bibles. You can go ahead and grab one. We'd love to make that another gift that our church gives you today, as we believe the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, divinely inspired Word of God. And we'd love to bless everyone with the greatest gift you could possibly be given. And so please take that on us. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23 today. What we do as a church is we usually pick a book of the Bible, make, it, make our way through it systematically. We've been in Luke for longer than you probably want to know. Uh, we've taken some breaks here or there, but we're coming in towards the end. We have about three sermons, three, four sermons left. And today we're in Luke chapter 23. We're going to be studying verses 39 through 49. And as you make your way there, um, I'm sure you've noticed, but a popular, very popular thing in our culture right now is this idea of inclusivity, right? Everyone wants to be inclusive. You know, all of a sudden you have stores with signs up and they, they say, hey, we welcome. They list out various kinds of people that they welcome. And I look at that, I'm like, huh, th thanks for clarifying. I didn't know that human beings weren't welcome before, but now you have a sign and now I know they're welcome. That's, that's great to know. You know, and then I look, I'm like, well, I'm, I don't know which one of those. Am I welcome in here because I'm not fit on there? Am I included in your inclusivity statement? Like, it's just, it's all a little confusing, right? Um, we, we love to be inclusive in our culture. It gets excited about that. But on the other hand, I can't remember a time when I felt that our culture is more fragmented. We seem to be very sensitive and very fragile. I mean, 10 years ago, I could have a conversation with someone about politics. But today, my goodness, you mention anything and people get triggered. I didn't even know triggered was a word 10 years ago. But now apparently people struggle with it all the time. One conversation can shut down relationships. I mean, I know families that aren't even talking to each other anymore because of some guy who's going to be out of office in four years. It's unbelievable. Our culture loves to celebrate inclusivity but our inclusivity seems to be predicated on how closely someone is going to be aligned with our way of thinking. Like we're willing to be inclusive of everyone as long as that category of everyone is only made up of people who think like me. Today we're going to see Jesus doing something very counter-cultural. We're going to see Jesus say something that I think is one of the most stunning and shocking statements in the entire Bible. We're going to see Jesus on his cross, and as he says something on the cross, we're going to see something that is so scandalous that if we aren't slightly uncomfortable with what Jesus is about to say, then I'm not sure we're actually going to under be understanding what he's saying. Jesus is going to make a very exclusive statement. It's 100% exclusive, but it's his exclusive statement that actually opens the way for there to be true inclusivity. See, my hope today is that after hearing God's word from this text, we'll be convinced about the open heart of God for us, and we'll rejoice that God's love is bigger than we could possibly imagine. And then as we are convinced of God's open heart towards us, we'll feel compelled to do something different than the fragmentation of this culture. We'll be compelled to truly and genuinely open our hearts to others. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, 
the inclusive message of the exclusive Christ. Let's read together from God's holy word. Starting in verse 39 of chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour. and There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Praise God for his holy word. May he be with us now through his Holy Spirit in the preaching of it. Glory be to Christ. I think there are two sections that we see here in this text. We see the welcome that the thief receives. And then we see the work that Jesus does to make that welcome possible. I think we can divide this text into the thief's welcome and the Savior's work. And through these two things, here's what I hope we see from this text this morning. I hope we see that God is telling us that believing in the exclusivity of Jesus should make us the most inclusive people in the world. Believing in the exclusivity of Jesus should make us the most inclusive people in the world. Let's look at God's word together, starting with the thief's welcome. We were told last week, in verses 32 and 33, that there were two other criminals who were crucified at the same time as Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. In verse 39 in our text today, we see that one of them started to rail at him, which means to angrily speak and make demands. He started to rail at him, save yourself and me. How often this is how God gets treated. If you're real, then you better start doing what I want you to do. Like, I'll follow you and listen to you once you learn to follow me by, and listen to me. But the other criminal corrects this guy's way of thinking. He corrects this man who's railing. The other criminal says in verse 40, do you not fear God? You see, this thief has come to recognize that this is not an ordinary man who's on the cross in the middle. He's saying, do you not fear God because he's come to believe that Jesus 
is God. And because of that, he believed that even though Jesus was dying on the cross, that the cross was not going to be the end for Jesus. Right? Because he goes on to ask him. He says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is incredible. This thief has picked up on something that all the Jewish religious leaders and teachers had failed to see. See, all the Jewish religious leaders and teachers had been very upset with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not the king that they had hoped for. They were looking for a political liberator, someone who's going to free them from the political oppressors, the Romans, and who's going to restore to them their land, Israel. They did not understand that when Jesus spoke about his kingdom, he was not speaking about political liberation or a geographical location, but the spiritual condition of experiencing the rule of God. They didn't get that. But this thief did. This thief believes in God's coming kingdom in Jesus. But notice, Jesus does not grant this man's request. Instead, he takes what he asks for and he raises the stakes. He takes what he asks for and he gives him something even better. Notice there are two differences between what Jesus what this man requests of Jesus and what, this, and what Jesus offers this man. In verse 43, he tells him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice, Jesus gives this man a different timing than this man requested. This man was looking for something in some unknown future. He says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, whenever that might be, there's no determined time on that, whenever that happens, will you remember me? Jesus says, no, today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The future that this man desired, Jesus said he was going to immediately experience. And notice that Jesus did not just say, today, I'm going to let you into my kingdom. That's all this guy asked for. He said, hey, listen, I just want to get in. Jesus does not just say to him, I'm going to get you in. What does he say? He says, today, you will be with me. This is not just a promise of general admittance, but the assurance of a personal relationship. It's one thing to be let in. It's another thing to be with him. It's one thing to be given a ticket to a Sixers game. It's another thing for Joel and B to say, hey, they're with me and take you down to sit with the team on the bench. I know not everyone here is a sports fan and I pray for you that you might one day enjoy God's good gift of sports. So let me, let me, let me give another illustration though. It's one thing to be given a ticket to Disney World. It's another thing for the CEO of Walt Disney to say, hey, this person is with me and take you through the park with their exclusive access. That's what Jesus is offering this guy. Not just general admittance. He's saying, you're going to be with me. This is shocking. This is stunning. This is scandalous. Because think about who this guy is. This is a thief. Who's being, who was condemned to die on a cross. We're not told exactly what he stole and what the nature of his robbery was, but we do know that in the ancient Roman world, crucifixion was an execution that was reserved for only the worst of criminals. And so we don't know what this man did, but it was probably not a white-collar crime. <laughs> this was most likely a violent offender. This man had probably taken someone's life. 
And this man had openly acknowledged that he lived a terrible life. I mean, he told the other thief in verse 41 that we are getting what we deserve. He doesn't give excuses. He doesn't say, hey, man, you know, this isn't fair. He said, no, no, no. I'm bad and I know it. We're getting what we deserve. But when he placed his faith in Jesus, Jesus said to this condemned criminal, you are going to be with me today. You're going to be with me today. This is stunning because think about what this means. There is no time for this guy to go through any kind of penance for his life. There's no time for this guy to go through trying to clean up his life and, okay, I did a lot of bad things, now I'm going to try and make it up by doing a lot of good things. There's no time in Christian terms for this guy to show fruits of repentance. There's no time for this guy to have every question he has about his faith answered or every doubt he has explored. There's no time for this guy to know all kinds of various nuances of theology. Now listen, I'm sure if he had lived another day and not died on the cross, that there were probably a few issues that Jesus would have wanted to work with him on. Like he's a thief. I'm pretty sure he probably had some sin he needed to repent of and some sinful behaviors and thought patterns that he needed to change. I'm sure if he had lived for several more years, there was obviously a lot of more things about Jesus that he would have learned. There's a lot more theology that he would have come to grasp. But friends, what we're seeing in this passage through the welcome that the thief receives, we are seeing that the gospel truth is that salvation from God is through faith in Jesus alone. I mean, think about it. This guy showed up in heaven. Shows up at those pearly gates, right? Shows up. Why should you be allowed in? Like, what's he going to be able to say? He can't point to a changed lifestyle. He can't point to good deeds. He can't point to his theological knowledge. He can't point to anything except saying, well, Jesus said I could come. Why am I here? I'm here because Jesus said I could come. Something I do sometimes when I'm just trying to draw people out about spiritual things, get people to think about life sometimes, which we don't do a great job of in our culture. We like to just watch a lot of Netflix and not think that hard. So I like to try to get people to think that, think hard sometimes. And so something I'll say is, um, so what do you think about the afterlife? Like, what do you think happens after this, you know? And um, most people, I think something like 80% of, uh, of uh, Americans right now believe in some kind of afterlife, believe in some kind of general heaven. So ask the question, if, you know, if you're to die, you know, why, why would you expect to go to go to heaven? And usually, almost exclusively, the answer is, well, you know, I, and fill in the blank with some kind of, you know, good thing or, or whatever it is that they think qualifies them. Friends, what we're see, seeing happening here in the welcome that Jesus is giving this thief is that there's no sentence that will ever get us into heaven that starts with, well, I. It's not, well, I. It's, well, he. <laughs> I'm here because of him. See, everything else in this world will tell you, here's how you have to save yourself. Here's how you have to perform. Here's how you have to be good enough. But Jesus says, put your faith in me, and I'll show you how I'm more than enough, and I'm all you'll ever need. Right? We sing that great and glorious hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, for I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Praise be to God. 
But you know, as Christians, I think sometimes we can sing that song. And we can believe that salvation is by faith alone and Jesus alone. But then we can feel like, yeah, but if I'm going to get a good seat in heaven, I better do all these other things as well. You know, I, I believe in Jesus, and I'm really grateful I've got these other things on my resume. And we think that we have these other things that somehow add to the qualification that Jesus gives us. Or I think even more commonly, we say, I believe in Jesus and salvation's by faith in him alone, yes, but, and we have something that we think puts us in a unique category and somehow excludes us from the salvation that Christ offers to us. What's your and? What was what, what, what the thing that you think gives you just a little bit more qualification for your salvation? Or what's your but? What, what's, your, what's your thing that you think maybe puts you in a different category? And somehow disqualifies you. Friends, this thief is promised the best spot. He's going to be with Jesus. And there was no and or but for him. He didn't have any time for there to be an and. He didn't have any time for there to be a but. There was nothing for him except Christ. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there are not sins that God wants us to flee or good works that God wants us to accomplish. No, God's made it clear in his word that he wants us to pursue godly character and be people devoted to doing good in his name. That is clear. That's how we should respond to the good news, the gospel of Jesus. But friends, it is vital that we never confuse our response to the gospel with the gospel. Friends, the gospel is the good news that the only way we get into heaven is because Jesus said we can come. Yes, as we see his love, we should respond to that with wanting to flee sin and pursue him faithfully. Yes, there's a response that the gospel calls us to. But our response to the gospel is not our hope for our entrance to heaven. The only thing that gets us into heaven is faith in Christ. Friends, the gospel of Jesus is the good news that he is the only news that we need. We should never confuse our response to the gospel with the gospel because if we do, we have now added an and where Jesus never intended there to be. Friends, this is our hope. This is our hope that Christ is our solid rock upon which we stand. It's our hope for ourselves and it should be our hope for others. When we first started this church, we had someone who was coming out, and after getting to know some people here for a few weeks, they wanted to meet with me because they were very concerned about the people that we were allowing into our church. And so this person met with me, and they're like, do you realize these people, I heard they listen to this kind of music. I heard, I, I heard they voted in this kind of way. Um, I heard they don't understand this kind of theology, and guess what? Once the summer came, they started wearing short sleeves. They had tattoos. And he just went down this list of all kinds of things he thought should disqualify people from being members here. And I listened to him, tried to listen to him very patiently. And I wanted to say, and I said to him very clearly, hey, I just want to be very clear to you. As a church, we have no right to have higher standards than heaven. And so if Jesus is willing to welcome people 
no matter who they are, if they put their faith in him, if entrance into heaven is predicated upon faith alone and Christ alone, then guess what? It means to be a member of Christ's church. There's one thing that qualifies us to be here. It is faith alone and Jesus alone. That doesn't mean that there's not things that we might need to work on and continue to grow in their godly character. Hey, if you're new here, let me let you know a little secret. We all need to grow in something. Like, I need to grow in some things. God is still working on me, and he ain't done. I'm very grateful my wife is not saying amen right now. She's being gracious. Like, we all have things that God wants to work on in our character. And those things are important. But that's not what qualifies us to be together. We're here, here because there are no ands and there are no buts. There's just Jesus. And I know this can make us sometimes uncomfortable. Like, we've had people leave because they feel like we don't wave a certain political flag. They feel like, you know, we're not controlled or we are controlled by certain cultural movements, movements all kinds of things. We have people leave because they think we are, we're, 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 we're too woke as a church. And we have people to leave who think that we're not woke enough as a church. <laughs> and, you know, I take that as, yeah, I think it's because we are not trying to be woke or not woke. We're just trying to be Christ's church. You know, if you follow Jesus... Here's what I'm learning. You're going to offend people on the right and people on the left. Because guess what? Jesus ain't either. He did not come to take political sides. He came to take over our hearts. And so when you're saying centered on Christ, you'll always be bumping up against someone else and offending something else. And so listen, like, we don't try to hide that. We try to be very clear about that. Like, I'm hopeful that the name of our church gives us away. Like, what are we? We are Christ church. We are founded and centered on him. And so, yes, we have people coming from this perspective, people coming from that perspective, people coming from this background and that background, all different. That's all fine. It's a mess. We'll figure it out. But the point is we're together in Jesus, and that's what makes us beautiful. The message of Jesus is an inclusive message. It's open to anyone. God's heart is open to anyone. But he's open to anyone who's willing to come to him. See, it's an inclusive message with an exclusive means. See, the only way this thief was going to get in was because he was going to be with Jesus. The only way the thief would be welcomed was because of the Savior's work. So let's look at the second part of this. Let's look at the Savior's work. After making this great and glorious promise to this thief, saying, today you'll be with me in paradise, we are told in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And we have to remember they didn't have clocks back then, so time was not measured in minutes and seconds, but by the height of a sun. And the Jewish day began at 6 a.m., and so the sixth hour was noon. When the sun was at its highest and its brightest. Well, on this day, when the sun should have been at its highest and its brightest, on this day, all of a sudden, we're told in verse 45 that the sun's light failed. There was darkness over the land for three hours. Now, I know what's really interesting is this phenomenon is not only described in the Bible. It's also noted by Thallus, who's a historian writing about AD 52, um, a Greek historian, um, no ties to Christianity. 
He wrote a history about Eastern uh, Mediterranean world since the Trojan War. He references it. Also, Phlegon, a Greek historian, he wrote extensive chronology about this. And so writing in AD 137, this is what he says. In the fourth year of the Olympiad, which, by the way, is about AD 33, or in other words, this time, um, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and that became night in the sixth hour of the day, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. Now, what we know, he's saying that's all he had, the vocabulary he had described. There was some kind of eclipse. Now, we know that it can't be an eclipse, because eclipse happens when right, things pass you know, in front, and that only happens for a few, a few minutes. That's why he called it the grace eclipse. He had no vocabulary to, comp, you know, to, to describe what it's like for darkness to be over the land for three hours. What is this darkness? What is going on? We need to understand there's a theme in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. The Jewish prophets talk about the day of the Lord as God's final judgment. As if to say there was the day of man where sin ruled the earth, but then there's a coming day of the Lord when his judgment for sin will come upon the earth. And so the prophet Joel writes about it. He says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then he goes on to describe what this day of destruction will look like. Job chapter 2, 11, 10 through 11. The earth quakes before them. The mountains tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Notice this is a day of destruction. This is a day of devastation. It's deadly. No one survives. And there's darkness. At the end of the second chapter of Joel in verses 30 and 31, he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The prophet Amos spoke about this day of the Lord. He says, on that day, declares the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now you have to keep in mind, these people are writing Hundreds of years before this moment that we read, read about in Luke 23. Prophet Zephaniah says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And so, friends, what we see happening here in this darkness is that God has showed up in his wrath. The day of the Lord had come. But not for the Romans, not for the Jewish leaders, not for the people. The day of the Lord had come for God's son. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 22, verse 13, and chapter 25, verse 30, Jesus calls hell, describes it as outer darkness. Hell is not where Satan reigns and lives. No, hell is where Satan is judged along with everyone else by the holy 
righteous, wrathful justice of God that obliterates all his enemies. But on this day, from noon to three, what we are seeing in this darkness is that hell had come to the hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus taught. That's why during these three hours, we're not told of any words that were said. There's no more sneering, no more scorning. There's no blasphemy. There's no taunting recorded. No one said anything. Not even Jesus. Because what we're seeing in this darkness is we're seeing Him who knew no sin being made sin for us. We're seeing Jesus bearing in His own body on the cross our wrongs. We're seeing Jesus being wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, cursed by God, as the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53. See, the only way for our eternal hell to be paid is for an eternal being to take our place. And so here we see the eternal Son of God absorbing the hellish wrath of God for all who will ever believe in Him. People talk about the love of God sometimes and how do I know God loves me? Friend, God loved you so much He literally endured hell for you. Questions about the love of God? See this darkness. See Christ. You can't hear Him because He's not speaking. You can't actually even see Him because darkness has descended on Him. But you know He's there and you know what He's going through. In those three hours, what would take us an eternity to experience in hell, Jesus in His infinite eternal being is having all that condensed down and poured into His soul as He takes what our sin deserves. You wonder if you're loved. Friends, there's no greater love this world's ever known than a love that would endure hell for us. We're told that as Jesus endured this, at the end of it, it says in verse 45, when this darkness had passed, we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There were 13 different curtains in the Jewish temple. But the one that's being referred to here is the inner curtain. The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. We have a picture here to show you a little bit, a little diagram. And so you have in the temple... You have what's the holy place. That's where the, the priests would regularly go. And so they go in and they, you know, light the lamp of menorah. menorah. They replace the oil. They would go in and bring prayers to the altar of incense and light incense. But, but they, there was a veil, as you see there, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place. The holy of holies, there was the mercy seat of God. On the mercy seat of God, there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where God had chosen to have His Shekinah glory, which is the glory of His presence. God had chosen that His presence would dwell with His people 
in the Holy of Holies. And that's why no one ever entered into that place. Because sinful people cannot come before the presence of a holy God without bad things happening. No one ever went into the Holy of Holies except once a year when the high priest would go in. And even then he would go in with bells on him so that if he fell, the bells would go off and people would know he was dead. And they, could, they literally had rope tied around his legs so they could pull him out. He in, went in only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. When he would bring blood and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. But there was a curtain that he had to pass through. And he was the only one who could pass through and he only did it once. It was a curtain that was there for the people's protection. It formed a barrier between the sinful people and the holy God. This curtain was thick, said to be about the width of a man's hand. 30 feet by 30 feet, so around 100 square yards. It weighed nearly 1,000 pounds. And Luke says this curtain was torn in two. And the timing here is very significant. Remember, this is the Passover. A major feast for the Jewish people. Where they would gather together to remember how they were enslaved to Egypt. And God broke them free by sending the angel of death to Egypt. But the angel passed over the homes of the Israelites because they would kill a lamb. And they placed the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And so it passed over them. And death did not visit their homes. And so for a thousand years, people had been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this great moment. To celebrate the Passover. And they do that by slaughtering a whole lot of lambs. And then feasting together on it. As they shared the Passover meal. Typically, that slaughtering of the lambs was done in the temple around, you know, three to five. Well, on this day, darkness had been over the land. So there was no sacrifices that were able to have been made at that point. But now the darkness had passed, and so you just have to start imagining that the, the priests are starting to get back to work. And it's just as they begin to kill these Passover lambs, they hear a noise. A loud tearing sound coming from inside the holy place, coming from the holy holies. See, at the moment where the priests were beginning to slaughter animals, like they had to do every year because the blood of animals could never fully take away sin, it was at that moment that God ripped open the curtain that separated His holy presence from sinful people. He ripped the curtain because the great and final sacrifice, the true Passover lamb, the one to whom all these things have been pointing to, Jesus had come. And now the holy blood of the Son of God had been brought before the mercy seat of God. And when His blood was placed there, there no longer was a reason for sinful people to be kept away from the holy God because the sinless Savior had given His life to pay for their life of sin. And so the curtain was torn. Never to be mended again. Because there's no reason for God to be kept from the people. Because God had made a way for everyone, anyone, to be welcomed into his presence. The darkness came so the curtain could be torn. And we know that Jesus' life was enough to pay for our debt of death. Because of what he says in verse 46. 
We're told in verse 46 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Jesus shouted at the top of his lungs in full strength. Friends, this is a victory declaration. As he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now this would have been a very familiar verse to the Jewish people who were around his cross that day. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 31 verse 5. It's a very familiar verse. It was part of their regular evening prayers. Most of them probably said this almost every day of their lives. But they would have noticed that as Jesus said this, he made two changes to it. He added something to it and he took something out. Let's look at verse 35. This is what verse 31 of Psalms chapter 5 says. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. O Lord, faithful God. Notice first, Jesus added the word, Father. This shows that at this moment, sweet communion had been reestablished between the Son and the Father. Oh, three days later, Jesus will be raised from the dead to prove what was already true. And we'll get into that when we... When we preach on that, why it had to be three days, there's a significant reason in Jewish culture for that number. We need to be very clear that it's at this moment that Jesus' work is done. He is no longer the one who's cursed by God. He's the one who's being welcomed home by the Father. And then Jesus leaves something out. He doesn't say that God has redeemed him because Jesus is not redeemed. Jesus is the Redeemer. (laughs) And so after that, Luke simply says... That he breathed his last. It was over. Hell was there for three hours. And then it was gone. Punishment over. Suffering complete. Payment accepted. Relationship with the Father restored. Victory over sin and Satan won. Access to God's presence granted. Friends, this is the Savior's work. And there's no other way for sinners to be saved than through the work of Jesus. This is exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. But he offers his salvation inclusively to anyone. Doesn't matter your heritage, doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your ethnicity, your gender. You could be white collar, blue collar, or not working and have no collar. Like, no matter who you are, because the darkness descended on Jesus and the curtain has been torn in two, now anyone can come. The thief's welcome is our welcome. Anyone can come through the salvation that's found in God's Son. It's an exclusive message that can include anyone who's willing to believe in it. And for those of us who have come to believe in this, for those of us who have come to believe in this exclusive offer of salvation, friends, this should make us the most inclusive people in the world. See, for the Christian, it shouldn't matter what someone looks like. It shouldn't matter where they come from. It shouldn't matter what they do. Friend, it shouldn't even matter what they believe. For the Christian who believes that we've been given access to the very presence of God, through the saving work of Jesus on the cross, if we are so loved by God that Jesus literally bore hell for us, then friends, being loving like that should make us the most loving people in the world. Now by loving, I don't mean that we don't speak the truth and share the gospel. No, of course we do that. 
not talking about fake, superficial love that just has nice platitudes. No, I'm talking about love that comes with a willingness to courageously share the good news of Christ, but do that marked with a life that clearly shows that you love them. You know, sometimes people love to share the message, but they don't love to live it. Friends, people will be far more willing to hear our words if they see something coming from our hearts. Often it's our good deeds that give us a platform to share the good news. People will care a lot more about what you have to say once you know you care about them. And so this is what it means to love people. It means to do good deeds to them in the name of Christ, and it means to share the good news with them about Christ. But friends, we should be willing to do that. Like, as Christians, we can never buy into cancel culture. We can't cancel anyone. If God doesn't cancel us in Christ, then what are we doing cutting people out of our lives? Friends, if God is willing to welcome a thief on a cross, who do we think is not good enough to be welcomed here amongst us? Friends, if we believe we've been so loved by God that God did all this for us, this should make us the most inclusive, open-hearted, big-hearted people in the entire world. Because we're not loving people based upon who they are. We're loving people from what we have. We're sharing with people, not, okay, here, I think you're worthy of my love for this reason. We're saying, no, 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 I'm going to love you regardless of who you are. I'm going to love you because of all I've received in Christ. I've got so much love coming in me that I can't do anything but share it out with those around me. See, when you believe the exclusive message of Christ, when you believe that you've been loved by God in such an incredible way, that's what leads you to be an inclusive person. A truly inclusive person. Because it's not going to be about having to agree on everything. It's not going to be about, okay, we come from the same type of perspective. We think all these same same things. No, it's not going to be inclusivity like the world has it. It's going to be an inclusivity that truly has diversity. Inclusivity, it's like, man, you and I don't see eye to eye on any of these things whatsoever. But here's what we agree upon. We agree upon Christ. And guess what? Even if we don't believe, even if you don't believe like I do, even if you don't share a common belief, I'm going to still keep loving you. Because God has never stopped loving me. Friends, being a Christian should make us the most loving people in the world. If we believe the exclusive message of Christ, which more and more people are getting offended by, you believe that Jesus is the only way, you're called a bigot. Friends, may we overcome the charge of bigot with our big hardness. Right? Like if you believe the exclusive message of Christ, that, that, that doesn't make us less loving, it should make us more loving. We don't lay down our exclusive beliefs. We don't start talking about multiple pathways and sell out to a message that will actually make us less loving. No, we go deeper. We double down on Jesus being the only way. We double down on him and his heart for us because it's at the cross that we feel and experience a wealth of God's love that we can share and spread to others. Friends, my prayer I pray regularly for our church. I was praying this morning in our Sunday morning prayer meeting that we had before our 9 a.m. service. My prayer is that when people come here, it would be like they're stepping into another world. Our world is so fragmented and fragile, and there's love that gets talked about, but it's so fake. My prayer is that they walk into here, they would experience something through how we love them. They would experience something of the love that God has for them. This would be an otherworldly place. That we would be an otherworldly community. That's what we're building here. This isn't just about showing up on Sunday and experiencing something. No, we're trying to be what God has called the church to be. 
an outpost for his kingdom on earth. We're trying to be a people of love, not so that we look great, so that more and more people come to know that God is glorious. Let's continue to build this community. Let's continue to be people who believe in the exclusive message of Christ. And may it lead us to be an inclusive people and bring a healing balm that this world needs in such a fragmented place. May we be something different here to show that God is so much greater than we could possibly imagine. Let's bow our heads in prayer.